almost 13% of all babies in the United States are born prematurely. With this growing epidemic, what can be done to prevent and treat preterm labor and improve newborn outcomes? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Michael Benson. Our guest today is Dr. Jay Imes, who is a nationally recognized expert on preterm labor. He is a Frederick Zussman Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Vice Chair of the Department at Ohio State University College of Medicine and Public Health. With hundreds of publications in the medical literature, he is a member of the Steering Committee for the Maternal Fetal Medicine Network of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Welcome, Dr. Imes. Thank you. We are pleased to have you on the show. Perhaps the most significant advance in the potential reduction of prematurity centers around treating high-risk mothers with progesterone. What can you tell us about this real improvement in treatment? Well, we can tell you that it remains a, a work in progress, but one that I think really is going to begin to address the problem of uh, recurrent preterm birth. Right now, that's the group of women who've been most studied are women who've had a previous preterm delivery, and there is substantial evidence in the well-controlled studies that administration of progesterone to these women beginning at about 16 weeks and continuing through 35 to 36 weeks can reduce the rate of recurrent preterm delivery by about one-third. Now, this is a special minority of women. It's a women who've actually had an established and documented preterm birth. That's correct. Without treatment, what is their risk of recurrence on the, on the subsequent pregnancies? The risk of recurrence is generally given at about 20%. If you ask that question to a, a group of physicians, they would probably throw that number back at you. But it's actually much more complex than that because it really does depend. The risk of recurrence depends not only on whether a preterm birth has occurred before, but also on how many preterm births on the patient's ethnic background, and on the gestational age at which the preterm birth occurred. Let me give you two examples. First, we'll take a Caucasian woman whose first preterm delivery occurred at 33 weeks. We'll say that she had ruptured membranes. Her risk in the first pregnancy was approximately 11%. So if we give her a twofold increased risk, which is what the usual epidemiologic literature says, her risk in the second pregnancy would be about 20%. However, if that woman in front of us has had two previous preterm births, same ethnic background, that risk would then double again. So her risk would be at least in the mid-30s, if not all the way to 40%. At the other extreme, if you're caring for a woman who's African-American, her baseline risk of preterm birth in her very first pregnancy is about 17 or 18%. So if she has a preterm birth in her first pregnancy, her risk in her second pregnancy is immediately into the 30% range. And then if the preterm birth occurs before 32 weeks, and the earlier the worse the risk is, you could have an African-American woman who very quickly has a 17% risk in her first pregnancy, delivers prematurely in that pregnancy at, say, 30 weeks. Her risk in the next pregnancy would be twice 17, and then twice that again. So you're very quickly up into the 40, 50, even 60%. And if she's had two previous preterm births, especially if they've both been early, you can easily see how these women are almost guaranteed to have repetitive preterm births. I have some questions about this. Let's talk about preterm premature rupture of membranes. If memory serves, this occurs one in a hundred times, uh, if the risk is double, that means on a next uh, for a subsequent pregnancy, that means the risk uh, of that occurring again is two in a hundred times. 
But in listening to you carefully, it sounds as though that's bad math somehow. It is. Uh, the... The prematurely ruptured membranes is one clinical presentation of the, what's called spontaneous preterm birth. Preterm labor and preterm ruptured membranes can occur for unique uh, non-repetitive reasons. For instance, uh, an automobile accident with blunt abdominal trauma, something of that nature, or uh, an acute event, uh, maternal sepsis with septic shock, that sort of thing. But in general, when you're talking about a woman who's had either ruptured membranes or preterm labor, somewhere between 18 and 34 weeks, who has no apparent risk factors. You're talking about the preterm parturition syndrome, it's been called, where the clinical presentation doesn't matter much. And so when we talk about recurrence risk, we really don't break it down by anything other than was it spontaneous, that is preterm labor or rupture membranes, or was it an indicated preterm birth that followed poor fetal growth or maternal hypertension. When I, the statistics I'm giving you for overall risk of preterm birth are risk numbers that speak primarily to spontaneous preterm birth. But we have to remember that indicated preterm birth also have a fairly high recurrence risk. Growth restriction does tend to recur. Hypertension can. Diabetes usually does. So other risk factors tend to recur as well. And then cervical insufficiency, I assume, is more of the same. So whether it's preterm labor premature rupture membranes, or cervical insufficiency, the key idea is any of these processes that result in a preterm birth, the patient has presumably a double risk, 200% increased risk next time. That's correct. And then you had mentioned something about 18 to 34 weeks. If a woman delivers at 36 weeks, that is four weeks before the due date, does that increase her risk? It does, but the magnitude of the increase is rather small at that point. So uh, when a woman... Uh, would present, for instance, for pre-pregnancy counseling and, and described a preterm birth at 36 weeks. What we teach our students and residents is that the obstetrician should be as compulsive as possible about obtaining the details of that history. Because a, a woman who goes into labor spontaneously at 36 weeks, whose previous pregnancy was completely unremarkable, has only a modest increase over whatever her ethnic group-related background risk would be. However, if she delivered at 36 weeks after a pregnancy complicated by preterm labor with bed rest at home or in the hospital, preterm cervical dilation and effacement for two months where she was four centimeters, and then finally delivered at 36 weeks, that's a little different. Her risk, obviously, is much higher. So in this group of high-risk women, women who, by definition, have delivered once prematurely already, Progesterone seems to work. Is that correct? It, it works in some of them. And I think that's the, the interesting question we don't know the answer to yet. It doesn't work in others. And I think the, the, my own uh, interpretation of the existing literature is that we're going to figure that out fairly soon over the next few years. There's just been published in the New England Journal in August a paper in which women with a short cervix identified by ultrasound a very short cervix, less than 15 millimeters, were given placebo or progesterone. And benefit was observed in this trial done largely in the United Kingdom. For women who got progesterone, the rate of preterm birth was less than half of what it was uh, in women who got placebo. And they were chosen only because they had a short cervix. For women with a previous preterm birth, we have to go back to those numbers we talked about before and say, remember that, that the risk of recurrence is a two-fold increase so that a woman who had a preterm birth before 
has a 20 to 40% risk of having it again, that means she has a 60 to 80% chance of not having another preterm birth. And those women, under our current strategy, are receiving progesterone supplementation, even though they don't need it. And our job is to figure out who does and who does not need it. And this study in the New England Journal suggests that measuring the cervical length with ultrasound in early pregnancy, say between 16 and 24 weeks, might allow us to identify women who are at increased risk and who would benefit from progesterone therapy and allow us perhaps to avoid treating those who don't. That's a, that's a leap uh, to a conclusion that I just made that I hope will come to pass. Well, don't worry. You just made it on national satellite radio, so everybody in the United States just heard it. Um, what about stopping contractions once they have started? Does tocolytic therapy help? Uh, the short answer is no. It, it helps briefly. For a period of a few days, while well, you can move the woman uh, at risk from a small hospital to a large hospital and administer antenatal corticosteroids uh, to the mother to treat the, the premature baby. That much, I think, is, is clear. But as a strategy for preventing preterm birth, it's uh, evident from these research studies we've been talking about with ultrasound that contractions really are not where the action is, and a, a strategy that's based on suppressing contractions is much too late and is treating many, many women who have contractions who have really no cervical change at all. What about the role of cerclages in the treatment of uh, cervical insufficiency? And for our audience who may not know what a cerclage is, it's a, it's a heavy suture placed relatively early in the pregnancy, also relatively high in the cervix, uh, to actually more or less sew the cervix closed. And it's been probably a mainstay of treatment for 100 years what does the modern evidence show about cerclages and their utility or efficacy? The modern evidence can be summarized as, as falling into uh, three phases, I guess. Back pre-1980, the teaching was largely that cerclage was something that might help a woman who had lost two or three pregnancies uh, in the mid-early second trimester, around 20 weeks, or give or take a little bit. But only the rare woman who had that history was truly a candidate. One of the things that happened with increasing use of vaginal ultrasound to look at the cervix was that many of us, myself included, thought that when we saw a cervix that was short or getting shorter and the woman was not having contractions, we really grew up with only two reasons. If she's not contracting, it must be cervical insufficiency. Let's put a stitch in these women. And so we did. In the 1980s and 1990s, first half of the 1990s, these women got cerclages very frequently, and the results were disappointing. At first, we blamed ourselves or our patients. Uh, somebody didn't put the stitch in high enough or didn't do it right or the woman didn't follow my advice. But eventually, we realized from careful observational research that really the treatment wasn't working because it wasn't the right treatment for what was going on. The cervix was changing despite the fact that the woman was not having contractions. And the same observational studies are what helped us learn that, that suppressive use of drugs to keep the uterus from contracting were not effective either. We used a tremendous amount of that medication, those kinds of medications in the 80s and 90s, and didn't change the rate of prematurity at all. So in the late 1990s and early 2000s, there have been some research trials about cerclage that have started to reveal that the role for sewing the cervix closed, as you said, is there, but it's probably much, much smaller than we thought it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And exactly who would benefit from a cerclage and, and who would not 
really is an open question right now. I tell my patients that nobody knows the answer to that question. What about uh, bed rest? Uh, that's been around for 100 years also. Yes. Bed rest is, is a chicken soup of obstetrics. It's prescribed for almost anything, whether it's bleeding or ruptured membranes or contractions or high blood pressure. And it has really very little evidence in support or against its use. Uh, it isn't that it's been shown to be not beneficial or shown to be helpful. It just hasn't been studied very well or very often. It has risks, too. Women put to bed are at increased risk of blood clots. And they, if they're in strict bed rest, they lose muscle mass, lose bone mass, and sometimes have a hard time recovering from that. Wow, so it's not entirely benign. Certainly not. I want to thank Dr. Jay Imes, who has been our guest. We've been discussing treatment advances for premature labor. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We would love to hear from you. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Be safe. Be informed. Thank you for listening.